Well, church, as you're having a seat, if you would grab your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, they'll be on the screen behind me. Uh, We've been tracking through the Sermon on the Mount for about the last 11 weeks. Um, It took Jesus about 20 minutes to say it. We've been in it for 11 weeks, and so uh, it's been great. The words of Jesus, this is him explaining, expounding upon, telling us what does it mean to live as people in the kingdom of God. And one of the most striking and often most confusing things about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is the very end, which is where we find ourselves. We find ourselves in the very end. We're two weeks away. We're going to be here this week and the next week, and we'll be done with the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. But it's a confusing ending, or it's a challenging ending. Um, Throughout this entire sermon that Jesus gives to begin his earthly ministry, he tells us how we're to respond to God. What does prayer look like? He tells us how we're to respond to the world, that we're to be salt and light. He tells us how we're to respond to the law of God, the Bible, all that it says. He tells us how we're to respond and live in light of the morality of the commands of the scriptures and the standard of God. He teaches us how we're to relate to one another. He teaches us how we're to relate to God himself through prayer. And now he's wrapping up this sermon. He's wrapping up all of these thoughts, all of these massive ideas that he's presented to us. And what's fascinating about this is that he doesn't end with like a really touching story. He, it's, not, uh, it's not puppies and kittens here, right? He doesn't, it doesn't end with a story that pulls on our heartstrings and makes us cry. He doesn't even really end with like a William Wallace-like charge the hill moment, right? We're like, yes, let's do this, Jesus. We can do this together as long as we're all in, right? We'll, we'll give our very lives. He doesn't even end like that. He's, he, doesn't, he doesn't do a call to action. He doesn't even give a practical application at all. Like there's no practical application at the end of this. Jesus ends his entire sermon, Jesus ends his entire explanation of what it means to live as people in this new kingdom that he's the king of and that he's establishing with three stark warnings. And they're hard to read and hard to understand. It's literally the opposite of every single leadership talk that's ever been given. It's literally the polar opposite of every single high school commencement speech that we've ever sat in or listened to. It's literally the opposite of every college graduation speech as we are ushered out into the world to go conquer and take what's ours and do and find our best potential. It's the opposite of every CEO town hall boardroom meeting. He doesn't do it that way. He doesn't do it the way that we would. And so on the topic of graduation speeches, I recently read a clip that I found to be very uh, accurate at times, uh, and it's a little segment from a book by a New York Times contributor. His name is David Brooks. He's not a, I don't, I don't know if he's a Christian, but it's not a Christian book. But I think what it does is it sums up 
modern thoughts and even the lostness or confusing times of the current generation and current culture that we find ourselves in right here today. And it's, uh, it's an insightful summary. It's almost like a parable or a he's poking fun at the terrible advice that we often give to graduates. Um, and I think it's a pretty insightful look at how the world tells us we are to live. Uh, and, it, and it's a stark contrast on how Jesus ends his most important sermon. Uh, listen to this. It's David Brooks's book, The Second Mountain. He writes this, uh, poking fun at graduating speeches, though with much insight. Many young people are graduating into limbo, he says, floating and plagued by uncertainty. They want to know what specifically they should do with their lives. And so we hand them the great empty box of freedom. The purpose of life is to be free. Freedom leads to happiness. We're not going to impose anything on you or tell you what to do. We give you your liberated self to explore. Go, enjoy your freedom that you have. And the student in the audience eventually puts down that empty box because they're drowning in freedom. They're looking for direction. What is freedom for? How do I know which path is my path? Which way do I go? And so we hand them another box, a big box of possibility. Your future is limitless. You can do anything you set your mind to. The journey is the destination. Take risks. Dream big. You can do it. And that mantra doesn't help them either. If you don't know what your life is for, how does it help you to tell you your future is limitless? It just ups the pressure. So they put down that big empty box. They're looking for a source of wisdom. Where can I find answers to my big questions about life? And so we hand them another box, a box of authenticity. Look inside yourself, it says. Find your true inner passion. You are amazing. Awaken the giant within. Live according to your own way. You do you. This is useless too. The you we tell them to consult for all of life's answers is the very thing that hasn't yet formed. So they put down that empty box and ask, what can I devote myself to? What cause will inspire me? What will give me meaning and direction to my life? And at this point, we hand them the emptiest box of all the box of autonomy. You are your own, we tell them. It's up to you to define your values. No one can tell you right or wrong for you. Your truth is found in your own way through your own story that you tell about yourself. Go and do what you love. Now I read that and I say all that because this is the cultural sea that we're living in today. Would anyone agree with that? Yes. This is, this is the culture and the air that we believe. This is why at the last VBS, uh, when Josh asks a group of sixth graders, fifth graders, what do you want to be when you grow up? They all said they want to be YouTube stars. Total autonomy. Do whatever they want to do and make silly videos on the internet that makes them rich. Really? That, like, that's it? Yes. This is the cultural air that we breathe. This is the speech that occurs at every high school graduation and every college graduation all over our state and all over our country today. 
And what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount, especially in this section, at the very end, as he's closing his thoughts, he's doing something very different than the messages that we hear, whether you would divine yourself on the right or on the left. He's doing something totally different. It is not defined by geopolitical. It is not defined by socioeconomic. Jesus is doing something very different. And remember, final words matter. These are the final words of the Sermon on the Mount as he's landing the plane, so to speak. So instead of freedom, Jesus closes his sermon and offers us this yoke that really makes us free. But it's his yoke. It's his burden. It's his way that he tells us. And he says, this is the way that leads to life. Not just total freedom, do whatever you want. He doesn't even give that as an option. Well, it is one option, but the results are bleak. Instead of limitlessness, it's a hard word to say, Jesus actually, in this closing bit of uh, what many would call his magnum opus on his teaching on the kingdom of God, he has so much packed into it, gives us this sobering, almost boundary on our lives. Not total limitlessness. He says, no, he's going to set a boundary up. And we're out there listening, we're like, ooh, I don't think I like this. This feels strange. In fact, Jesus' boundary that he's setting up at the very end is so limiting and so opposite of the cultural air that we breathe that he literally tells us there are only two ways. There's two. There's not a hundred. There's not 50 within this one, and they all kind of get you to the same place. He says, there's two paths. There's two. And he says, choose which one you're going to be a part of. And so there are not infinite possibilities within all of this. It is not the sermon of be what you want to be. Jesus actually boils down his entire sermon, his entire summation of what it means to live in the kingdom of God as an either or choice of one path or another. In my generation, this is the matrix moment, the red pill or the blue pill, right? Anyone remember that? Three of us? Yeah. Got one amen from the pastor. Thank you. Appreciate it. This is it. This is the Neo moment. Which pill are you going to take? Jesus is at the very end. He's saying there's there's only two choices here. And instead of uh, closing his sermon with a pep talk about you do you and find your own truth and you can do anything, just look within your inner heart and believe in yourself and then you could fly and you got this, Jesus actually offers us a sermon away from ourselves. He says, you want to find truth and meaning in life and purpose? He says, it's not found in you, it's found outside of you, in me, he's going to tell us. And that's the good news of the gospel, that something, someone from outside of us is actually what we really need. Is actually the very thing that we're searching for within, but we can never find it within. We can never muster up what we think we need to get to whatever place we think we need to go. It's found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And so in this sermon, instead of autonomy, that's the last thing Jesus cares about for you, is autonomy. The last thing he wants you to do is be, 
I actually know a YouTube star, so forgive me for if he listens to me, is a YouTube star that's totally autonomous and doesn't have to answer to anyone. He actually calls us into a people, right? A part of a body that belong to him, that are found in him. And through this visible community, we are formed under his yoke as disciples. And we learn to love this thing that he establishes. And it's called the church. With all of its warts and with all of its bruises, we learn to love it. Because that's where family's found. That's where belonging is found. And it's under his banner and his yoke. And it's good. And so as we close the Sermon on the Mount this week and next week, I want, us to, uh, I want us to feel the closing of this sermon. Uh, each of these could take weeks to unpack. These are really hard statements of Jesus. And so if you're a guest, welcome, glad you're here. Some of the hardest words of Jesus you've just stumbled into right here, right? Um, but it's good. It's good that he has us confront these things. These are often not preached. And so I want us to feel the totality of what he's saying to us. So rather than just take each one of these hard statements and spend weeks on it, I want, it, I want us to feel all of it in its entirety as a closing, as Jesus teaches it to us. And in Jesus' closing, he looks at us, he looks at those that are wanting to follow him in this new kingdom way, and he says, there's two gates. There are two ways or two paths. There's two kinds of prophets. There's two kinds of trees. There's two kinds of fruit. There are two kinds of disciples and there are two houses. He tells us all of these stories. He tells us all of these things. And so I want us to feel them and see them in their context. It's almost as if he has to give us seven examples to get it through our thick skulls that we often have, right? It's the same story seven different times with seven different analogies. We looked briefly at the first one last week, but I want to revisit it just to give us a sense of what Jesus is doing as he's landing the plane in his sermon of the people of God living in under his care and rule. Matthew 7, 13 and 14 says, Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those that enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Those are hard words. Jesus is making the point here that the way that is wide, the easy path, we talked about it last week, why is it a wide path? Because there are so, think about it, before concrete, before pavement, everyone's on it. It's trampled down, it's beat down, it's an easy, wide path because you look around and everyone travels that way. We're all going that way. We're all just running the same direction and it's this easy, wide path with no turns and no uphill battles. And everyone just hops on that wide path. Jesus says that way leads to destruction. And here's the, here's the crazy thing, is that within that wide path, it feels like there are millions or billions possibly of possibilities to find the good life. And we, we struggle and we strive to find it within the wide path. Try to carve our own way out. Try to get a piece of the pie for ourselves with all these other people walking with us. And so the wide path 
Jesus doesn't make any distinction. You can be progressive, you can be conservative, you can be artsy, you can be a corporate person, you can be a musician, you can be religious, you could be irreligious. He makes no distinction of what type of people are on that path. In fact, in the verses following, he's gonna say, there's some people that even look the part, but they're on the wide path. They say the right things, but they're on the wide path. And he says, no matter how amazing you think your version of the good life is on the wide path, you are caught up in the cultural flow that is not leading to where you think it's going to lead you. Jesus is talking about flourishing, human flourishing. He's talking about life. And on the flip side, he's talking about destruction and death. He's saying that wide path that you think will lead you to flourishing isn't going to. It's that wide path, it's almost like when you think, it's like an undertow. Have you ever been caught up in an undertow? And so conservative, liberal, progressive, not progressive, is not even the question here for Jesus. This is not the argument that Jesus wants us to wrestle through or ask. He says, are you going to enter through the hard road of discipleship and repentance and a heart that's for him in the ways of God? for the people of God? Or are you gonna get caught up in the centrifugal force of the world and your flesh and the evil one because they have very different destinations? Jesus says there's two gates and two ways. Then he says there's two prophets and two trees. Listen to Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Carries on the same theme. Beware also false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruits, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Now here's the sobering part, the scary part, all these scary words of Jesus. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, it's cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. He's saying there's two kind of prophets. There's false ones, and there's ones that are actually leading you and pointing you and directing you and calling you back to the narrow path, even though it's the hard way. There are two kinds of trees, the kind that produces bad fruit and the kind that produces good fruit. He's, he doesn't say there's one tree that looks like dead and dry and it produces shriveled up fruit that's like worthless. He says, no, there's two trees. One of them produces, they both produce fruit and they both look pretty good. One of them is just bad or poisonous. And so there's good fruit that leads to life and then there's another tree that looks like it's producing fruit but you grab it and it's on a different path and you take a bite of it and it's poison, it's bad. And the only way to get rid of that bad fruit is to get rid of it. It's diseased. It's not producing what it should be. And so he's saying there are false prophets, there are false ways of teaching, there are false things that want to invade our minds and our hearts that are going to tell us, hey, just come back over here to the wide way. It's, It's okay over here. Jesus is cool with this. And the point is here, in these false prophets or these false teachers, they don't come looking like the grim reaper. 
A lot of times we think, oh, false prophets. It's like kind of in our storybook mind, we think he's this big, bad, evil person. We just had Halloween. He's going to kind of look like that. And they're very easy to spot. And you're like, oh, clearly don't listen to that person, right? They're a false prophet and they, they look the part. No, he's, he's saying that there's no uniform. They look like sheep, right? But they're there to take advantage of you. They're there to prey on you. A wolf is a predator, They're there to lead you away from the narrow path and get you back on the wide path. The main job, catch this church, the main job of a false prophet or a false teacher is to make you believe that the wide path is just fine with Jesus. That could be a podcaster, that could be a blogger, that could be a TV show, it could be your favorite YouTube channel. It's just that, that, that influence that you're listening to, your heart begins to believe that says, hey, Jesus is fine with just continuing on over here. He's A-okay with it. They want to encourage a culturally relevant and palatable path than the one that Jesus calls his disciples to. They tell you what you want to hear. They tickle your ears. Where Jesus says, no, you want life? It's actually denying yourself and taking up your cross and following me and serving one another and loving one another. It's not just all about you. Jeremiah says, false prophets fill you with vain hopes. I think that's a good description. Vanity is all about us. And we love being filled with vain hopes that fill Uh, us with vanity. They're all about me. They're all about what I can do to look better, be better, do better. Jesus is like, it's actually about laying your very life down for the good of others as I've done for you. Jesus is pointing out these stark differences. There's two gates There's wide and narrow, there's two ways, and there's two kinds of prophets, there's two kinds of trees, there's two kinds of fruits, and then he goes on and he gets really serious, and he adds that there's two kinds of disciples and two kinds of houses. Here's the scariest verse in the entire Bible. You ready for it? Welcome, glad you're here for your first time visitor. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell And the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell And great was the fall of it. Jesus is saying these frightening verses that there's such a thing as a false disciple, that it's possible to say, Lord, Lord, and not care about the will of your Father who is in heaven. Rather, but be filled with vanity, what you think is good, what you think is right, doing whatever is right in your eyes. Just the words we say are the fact that we know the lingo or the fact that we know how to look or we know how to dress or we know how to fit in does not mean that we are disciples of Jesus. And Jesus is rattling us to the core. 
in these statements. Jesus says that there are false disciples and they're gonna be known by him or not known by him in that great day. He says, workers of lawlessness, they claim Lord, Lord, but really they're their own lords going about it their own way. That's frightening. Scariest verse in the Bible. When they disagree, meaning when they disagree with the words of Jesus, they think, "Uh, no, I don't like that part. And they do what is right in their own eyes. The, these false disciples, they, they, right, they just sort of hear what they want, take what they want, but don't trust all that Jesus says. They don't stand on the rock of his words and what he wants for us, what he calls us to. They say, I kind of just like this little piece, but I'm going to discard the rest of it. And I'm going to sort of build my own way over here. He says, that's a sandy foundation, and it's going to crumble when life hits you. It won't stand up. And when the storm comes, and he says it will for everyone, for the true disciple and the false disciple, storms are coming, he says. The one that builds his life and his hope and his heart and his mind on the word and works of Jesus, that, that house stands. Uh, and the other one crumbles, and great is the fall of it. And what's interesting about all of these things is that There's two gates, there's two ways, two paths, there's two fruits, and there's two houses. Both of them look like nice houses. They're both just right there. In fact, as I read it, it kind of sounds like a beach, one that's sandy, right? There's some rocks there. Nice beach houses. But he says, it's not the look of the house, the facade of the house, it's what's underneath. It's the foundation. What has grounded you? Has Jesus grounded you? Does he have you? Because when the storms come and he hasn't, it's scary. So what does it mean to be a disciple then with all these words that he's throwing at us? It means to believe in Jesus and not just having the right words. It means to believe in Jesus and desire to do the will of the Father. That's what he just said. Not just look the part. And this is hard for us in evangelical conservative Bible Belt Christianity. You can, you can even kind of get ahead in life by saying the right things and sort of looking the part. It's advantageous for you, oftentimes. And Jesus is having us self-examine our hearts. Are our hearts and our minds anchored and has our affections been changed that we want to do the will of the Father? We want to hear these words. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So it's to build your life on the rock of Jesus as your foundation, as your hope, as your anchor, not on the latest trend, not on the latest fad, not in the latest whatever makes you feel good in the moment, Jesus is saying. It's to be known by Jesus. So what does all this mean? Two gates, two prophets, two trees, two disciples, two houses. I think what, what we need to understand is that there is no division between the goodness of Jesus and the authority of Jesus. There's no division between the goodness of Jesus and the authority of Jesus. It's not one or the other. 
What does that mean? It means Jesus is good. It means he is gracious. It means he's loving, kind, tender, merciful. But if you exclude the authority of Jesus from what you're doing and saying, I just want to take all the grace and love, but not actually surrender my life to what he says I should do. Then he says, you'll stand in that last day and just and say, Lord, Lord, but I did all the, I said all the right things. Right? Jesus is wrapping up his sermon, and he's saying, church, that's not a disciple. On the other hand, there's churches that are sort of built on the other way, that Jesus, uh, on the authority of Jesus, but none of the goodness, right? It's the truth of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the, what, you know, we're going to sniff out all the false prophets, and we're going to come after them and write books about them, and we're going to point fingers and throw stones at them but they lack any of the grace, the kindness, the love, and the mercy. But Jesus says every, he welcomes everyone who is burdened and heavy laden, and we can find rest in him. So it's grace and truth. It's not a middle way, it's a totally different way. It's grace and truth. It's both, 100%. So in Jesus's authority, he calls us to this narrow path, and here's the, here's the catch. That way is actually his goodness. That hard way is actually the goodness of God, the mercy of God. This hard passage, here's the thing about warnings in the Bible. Warnings are actually a mercy from God that we don't get to the end of the day and have to hear this. Mercy, like blessings and mercy in the Bible want the same thing. A blessing says, if you live in this way, in this manner, it will produce this in your life. And we love those things. We're like, yes, I'm going to do that. Well, a warning is wanting the same thing. It says, hey, if you don't do this, be warned. If this is in you, it will produce this. And it's wanting us to turn and run to Jesus. And so when Jesus gives us both blessings and curses, he's wanting it to produce in his people um, repentance and change that we would ultimately be led to him. Whether he says it in the positive way or in the negative way, he's ultimately wanting us to do something with it that would result in him and his blessedness and our flourishing in the kingdom of God. All right, secondly, Jesus closes, I'm almost, I'm almost out of time. He closes his sermon with a stark choice. It was a stark choice 2,000 years ago, and it's a stark choice today. Flourishing or life? Flourishing or rather, flourishing or death? Right? And he's, he's demanding almost a response. He's saying uh, an embrace of Jesus in this life carries over to an embrace of him in eternity and it leads to, death, it leads to life. And likewise, he's saying a rejection of his authority and his words and his life and his yoke in this world today carries over into eternity and leads to destruction in eternity. There's two ways, two gates, life and destruction, two kinds of prophets, two kinds of trees, two kinds of disciples, two kinds of houses. He's saying, build your house on the rock. And so as your pastor, maybe you've never been here before, and I, just, I still, if you've never been here, want to plead with you to say, don't build your life on the sand. There are so many voices out there that want to tickle your ears that will make you and make you think that if I build my life on this idea or this principle, that's how I find flourishing. You only find it here. Build your life on his word, on what he says of us. 
Everything else is confusion. And you can trust him. Everything that Jesus has said has come to pass. You can trust him. You can trust him at his word, church. I mean, look around today. How are we doing with this whole way of the world thing and following our own path and following our own heart and you do you? Like, maybe if you could come to me and make an argument like, hey, we're, just, we're doing just fine without all this stuff, I'd be like, have you been alive for more than three minutes? It's like, turn on the news, like open up a web browser, go, jump on. It's mass confusion about almost every topic imaginable. Even the most basic things of even biology are now in confusion and in question. We are a confused, lost people and we're grasping to find some type of meaning in all of these false ways that do not lead to life and flourishing. It doesn't lead to more depth and more beauty and more love. Following the wide path leaves you, it it lessens you, it diminishes you. And Jesus comes and says, there's just two ways. And the amazing thing about the two ways is that he doesn't leave you alone to navigate this world. He enters in, he bears your sins, he bears our burdens on the cross. He loves you. He tells you the truth in the face of all the other lies. He is the one, even in our wrestling and in our doubt, still pursues and comes after us. And the great thing about Jesus is it's not just an ethical sort of mental ascent. He pursues you even in our fight to stay on the narrow path and comes to you and he has holes in his hands because he's purchased you. His blood now covers you and he keeps you and he holds you and he makes and he course corrects you every time you think that that wide way is alluring. He says, "No, no. Remember, I came for you, and I did that which you could not do. You couldn't stay on the narrow path, and I did what you could never do on your own. So when you believe in me, I come to you, and I bring you the Holy Spirit, the Helper that you need to guide, to redirect, to reform your mind, to reshape your heart, to keep you where you need to be, and it will ultimately lead to flourishing in life. And we do that because of the gospel." So church, it doesn't just mean we have the right words. It means we build our life on Jesus because he's done everything for us. He's done all the work and he keeps us on that narrow road and he course corrects our hearts and our minds when we believe falsely. And lastly, very last thing, um, Jesus is demanding a response here. That's why he gives us these passages. The Sermon on the Mount is not just an ethics lesson. It's not just like an interesting case study on what uh, a guy a long time ago thought about religion and the kingdom of God. It's an encounter with the son of the living God in the flesh as he teaches us, lives for us, and dies for us. And church, catch this. If you've been with us, or maybe you've just been with us today, We've been looking at this for 11 weeks and there is a measure of responsibility through hearing the words of Jesus for 11 straight weeks. There is a measure of accountability and responsibility that Jesus is demanding a response by setting out these two paths. You cannot just sit on the fence. He gives us a choice. 
And he's, and he's desiring, he longs for you to run toward him as he's pursuing you. He said, get off that wide path. Don't believe all the false hopes and false gospels. Believe in the one true one. And we can run to him with no shame because of his cross and resurrection. And we can come to him and call him friend and Lord because all that he has done for us and rest in him. Let's pray together, church. Lord Jesus, I pray this morning for anyone in here that heard your words this morning, God, and Lord, you have made it abundantly clear that they are running down the wide path. God, I pray you would do a work in them. God, I pray that you would wake them up. I pray that you would call them out of that. And Lord, that you, by your grace, by your nail-pierced hands, would enter in and show them the true way. Show them what it means to build their life on the rock of your word and your life. Lord, because that is the only one that stands strong in this confusing and eroding world in which we live. Lord, we as a church confess to you that we stumble and fall and we do not stay on the path that you so desire for us. Forgive us where we have failed. Forgive us for where we have strayed away. And we thank you that those same nail-pierced hands that went to the cross, Lord, now apply to our hearts and call us back. And so, Lord, help us, help us continue on that way, the narrow way. Help us to love and serve and know that actually it's not about vanity, that life is not about vain pursuits, but it's about laying our lives down and serving and loving you and serving and loving others as you have shown us and done for us and modeled for us in the gospel. We need you in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship church.